0: Welcome. Uh, my name is, is Tim. If, uh, if this is your first time here, I don't know you. It's, it's really great to have you here. We're so glad you're here um, this morning. And for those of you that have been around, you know we're doing a little bit of a different rhythm right now And having me come up before, uh, before the scripture reading. And uh, the reason is, is, is we're just in an interesting text this morning. Um, and so if you're a guest, this morning is going to be a bit unique. We're looking at a passage I'm a little hesitant to preach on. Not because I don't believe what it says, but just because I know there's a lot of misunderstanding um, around this text, as well as there's so much to unpack here. I know I can't answer every question or or deal with every legitimate frustration maybe you would have from reading this text. Um, So I'm hesitant to preach, but even with all of those qualifications... Um, I think there's something important for us to hear this morning. And so, as a church, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, so we don't skip over passages. We hit everything, even the difficult ones. And that's where we're at this morning um, in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, verses 2 through 16. So, we stand now as we read um, God's word. And then I'm going to pray for us after we, we read God's word, and then we'll jump into this thing. Here we go. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I know just in reading that text, I have questions. And so I pray now as we stand before you, I pray, God, you would give us understanding. That we would know your word, that we would listen. God, even if we read this and we just don't know what to do with it, I pray we come with open hearts and ears to to learn, to listen, to know your word better. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we're here gathered for. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Well, y'all are curious now, right? There's a, there's a whole lot of questions that this text raises. But behind all those questions is, is another question we can't avoid, which is, are there differences between men and women? And I think that question pretty, has a fairly obvious answer. If you take my wife, she has beautiful hair on top of her head and no hair on her chin, Whereas I have beautiful hair on my chin and no hair on top of my head. Right? I mean, we just look different. We appear different. We dress different. And we are different as men and women. And that leads to a second question, the more controversial question, which is is why? Why are we so different? And could those differences point to differences for why we're here? Different things we're called to do because we're male and female. That's a difficult question. It's a question worth asking, worth answering. But before we press into this, how this text answers that question, I, w- I want to say two things up front. First, to, to the Christian. That how you answer that question, I think, is a point Christians can disagree on. I think for Christians who love the Bible and who've landed in a very different place than where I've landed or where we as a church have landed. In fact, for most of my life, I landed on a different place or a different interpretation of this text. And I believe, too, Christians should be able to disagree in a way inside the church. It's not possible outside the church. Right? We live in a culture that the moment we have someone who disagrees with us, we demonize them, we, we shout, we bicker, we argue. We can't see the logic or the, the hearts in other people's positions often. And In the church, it shouldn't be the case. Right? That we're gathered around a gospel and God's word, and as long as that stays front and center, we can disagree and have space for conversation where the virgin opinions can enter, enter into humble conversation. That's my hope this morning. And if you disagree, if you land in a different place from this passage this morning, I hope you feel like you have a place here because you do. So that's the word to, to the Christians in the room, to the non-Christian. If you're not a believer, maybe you, you come in, you hear that text read, and you say, well, that's, that's why I'm not a Christian. Right there, that's a good example, a great illustration because it just sounds so strange And to you, my encouragement would be this morning that this this isn't the center of our faith. And for you, the question isn't, well, is Tim interpreting 1 Corinthians 11 correctly? That's not the question. The question for all of us, really, but especially if you're not a Christian, isn't, what does this text say? But did Jesus rise from the dead? If he didn't, then I'm probably wrong and I'm wasting your time and this text doesn't matter anyway. But if he did rise from the dead and the person who wrote these words, the Apostle Paul, saw him alive after he was dead, then maybe he has something to say about what it means to be male and female. And maybe you disagree, maybe you think it's wrong, but if if there's even a possibility that's true, these words at least are entering into, but at the very least, this isn't the center of our faith. Jesus and his death and resurrection is the center of our faith. But the reality is, I do think we need insight when it comes to how we think about male and female in our culture. That even if you read those words and you think that's just that just sounds so terrible, I would just ask: Does our culture have a much healthier and better respect between men and women? Does our culture reflect more love and more embrace between the two genders? I'm skeptical on that point, which is why about seven years ago I I went back to this text to try to understand what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman. That I look in our culture, a culture where divorce is very easy, where pornography is very present, where there's mistrust between male and female, and I just don't receive everything I hear there. I want a different voice, and First Corinthians 11 is a different voice, and it was a difficult text for me to, to, to dive into, to wrestle through. It's going to be a difficult text for us this morning to dive into, to wrestle through, but let's do that work this morning. Let's wrestle with this text together this morning. And as we wrestle, you'll probably have the same reaction that I've had as I've wrestled, which is to work through why we hate these words, why we need these words, and how we live these words. To so start with why we hate these words. I think we, right, we're good Americans. We hate any sign of inequality. We believe individual freedom and choice is crucial to human beings realizing their potential And it's clear to us, at least it should be in this world, that women often have much fewer choices in life than men. That we think of that, and then we we read about how women have to keep their heads covered while they pray, and we think, this just sounds like nails on a chalkboard to us. Or, even worse, we think of, of abuse of women at the hands of men. In their book, Half the Sky, Cheryl Lou and her husband, Nicholas Kristof, detail some of the horrific abuse women face around the world. And they lead their book by saying this. In the 19th century, the paramount moral challenge was slavery. In the 20th century, it was totalitarianism. In this century, it's the brutality inflicted on so many women and girls around the globe, sex trafficking, acid attacks, bride burnings, and mass rape. And if you've taken time to press into their book, their story, their stories back up that claim. It's deeply disheartening what many women face in in our world. And then there's our culture with the conflicting messages we send to, to women. Where we expect women to have a thriving career. And also you better raise your kids really well. Don't neglect them. Where you're expected to multitask, right? Keep 12 balls in the air at once, but don't drop one. Where you're expected to, to take control, be decisive, be a strong woman, but don't be bossy or a nag. Right? We have conflicting messages we send to women. And to so the women in this room, I can't imagine what it's like to have to live into those conflicting messages, the shifting demand, the unrealistic expectations. To live under the guilt of, of the fact that there's no way you can live up to the messages our culture continually pushes on to women. And then we come to this passage, right, where women are asked, keep your, keep your heads covered. It's really important when you pray, keep your head covered. And we're like, what? Is the Bible just piling on here? This is, just sounds terrible. But these words sound like they are from another world because they are. A very different culture than us, but a culture with the same problem we have. The same mistrust between gender, the same conflict between male and female. And Paul sits down to write to this church To explain to them, your differences as male and female. They're glorious, good things. And to get to what Paul says, we have to wade through some of the cultural realities he speaks to from his day. But the words he wrote are words we need to hear because our problem is their problem. Our mistrust, our failure to love and to be together as different genders is the same problem Paul is speaking to here. It's why we need these words. And if I had to give one reason above all else why we need these words, is because we need healing between gender, between male and female. And maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you in your life perfectly relate to the person of the opposite gender in your life. Right? Congratulations if you're there. But for the rest of us, we need healing. We need a, a way to be male that lifts up the females around us. We need a way to be female that lifts up the males around us. And that's so often a tension we don't live into very well. Because Paul's main point here is that as females, as women, you have this distinct goodness and glory about you. And as men, you have this distinct goodness and glory about you. And Paul unpacks that point, spends time unpacking that point, that we as men and women have different glory. And I realize glory is a churchy word, right? It's a word we don't throw around very much. But glory simply means goodness on display. So think of an artist, a painter, Right, her artwork, her painting is her goodness on display, her glory. That's why when we see a good movie, we share it with lots of people. It's goodness, glory's meant to be shared, meant to be encountered with other people. And Paul's saying, as male and as female, you have a glory that's be, that's, that's meant to be on display. It's goodness to be shared. It's distinct. It's it's unique. And when Paul speaks of men and women, he says, "Listen, men, and when it comes to men and women, men and women are, they're equal." Equal in dignity, value, worth. There's no separation of of value. We're equal, but we're not equivalent. We're different. It's obvious, and yet we often smooth over that reality. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul lays out three ways our distinct glories as men and women should play out and should look and should be lived into. The first being that our glory as men and women should tell the story of, of God's glory. That Paul begins this line of thinking in verse 3, and if you were maybe reading along in the ESV there, you might have been confused why I said man and woman instead of husband and wife. That This is one of the points where the text is difficult. We're not sure if Paul means husband and wife here, or man or woman. I think man and woman is a better interpretation, especially when we get to the later part of the chapter when Paul really begins to press in. He's not speaking to marriage, he's speaking to men and women in generally, how we relate to one another. But that's an okay point to, to disagree on. It doesn't really affect the interpretation of, of the passage. But Paul starts by unpacking this, this different, these different glories in verse 3 by saying this. Arguably, probably the, most, the hardest verse to take in for us. Right, but I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. What in the world does Paul mean there? Well, let's take it one at a time. Start with with men your head is Christ. And the Greek word head, literally, it just means authority. Which means, men, Christ is our authority. Period. Now, there's not a lot clear about this passage, there's a lot of divergent ways to interpret different places Paul will go here. This is one that's really clear. If you're a man, your final authority is Christ. And I, I would say, if, if men lived like this was true... This passage wouldn't trouble us the way it does. If we didn't have the history of the way men have used their own power, their own privilege to hold others down, especially women, this text would read so much differently than it does to us. If we men live like Christ, giving up our rights for the good of others, not our lives for ourselves, but our lives for others, like Jesus, this text would read completely differently. And so as we start, man, I would just say, you are not your authority. And if you have not heard that, you're not ready to hear anything else, this pastor says, Christ is our authority. But then Paul goes, takes the next step, and this is where it gets sticky. Where Paul says the head of woman is is man. Oh boy. What does that mean? And obviously, the, the word head, it doesn't change in a half a verse. The meaning of it can't change in a half a verse. It can't mean men, their authority is Christ, but now it means totally something different. So in some way, Paul is saying when it comes to men and, and women and how they relate, men carry some sort of authority with their gender. So what does that mean? Well, Paul quickly qualifies that, right? Whereas men, he just says, men, Christ is your authority, period. That's end of the discussion. But with women, he, he tacks on the second line of, of and just as Christ... Or just as God was the head of Christ. And I think what Paul is getting at there is that our relationships as male and female are to, to signal back to the Trinity, right? Our glory is to reflect God and God's story. That Jesus, in his life, was completely equal to the Father, right? The Trinity is three persons, all God, distinct persons, yet equal in worth. And so Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was equal to the Father, but he wasn't equivalent. Right? Both God, different persons. And so during his earthly ministry, Jesus gave up certain rights. Gave up those rights in order to serve God, in order that we might be saved. To give his life for the good of others. But Paul says this elsewhere in Philippians 2. He describes Jesus' ministry in earth like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That Jesus, in his life, willingly let the Father take the lead. Not as an inferior, but as a partner in an important mission. And Paul is saying, in some way, our genders as male and female are to reflect that reality, that relationship. Now think of a dance. Right? In a good dance, there's a leader, but it's not obvious who is leading. The beauty is in how the mystery of how the two work together, even as one leads. And that's how God himself worked in the life of Jesus, three persons always seeking the good of the others, always lifting up the others, Jesus giving up his rights that those around him might be saved and have new life. And Paul is saying, Our createdness as genders is to live out that glory, is to reflect that glory. So, men, your job in the dance between men and women, between male and female, is to reflect the, the glory of Christ as your authority. To lead the dance as he would, always serving, always sacrificing, never demanding. And females, your job in the dance is to reflect how Christ trusted the Father in his earthly life. How he didn't need to be first, how he voluntarily gave, voluntarily gave up his life for the good of others. That our glory as men and women is to tell the story of God's glory. That's where Paul starts. But secondly, he presses in to probably what's going to be the most contentious point this morning, that there's glory in our gender differences. And believe it or not, this is why Paul presses in so far into the head coverings issue, right? And I know you're all just fascinated. What, what are head coverings? Are we going to break them out this morning? What's going to happen? Um, we're not going to break them out. But head coverings, we don't really know what they were exactly, but in that day, most likely we think they were what a married woman would, would wear in the church service. Sort of like a wedding ring. And so therefore, for a married woman to deny or to not wear a head covering would be to, to deny her marriage, would be in some ways even to deny her role as, as, or who she is as a woman. Or for a man to wear one, which is apparently going on here, a man to wear one would be to deny himself as a man. It would be to take on a role as a female that he's not meant to take on. And there's a lot that we could unpack and we could spend hours on verses 4 through 7. But Paul's basic point there is don't deny your glory as a gender. It's unique. And it's different. As male and female, it's not the same. It's equal, but it's not equivalent. And don't deny that. Don't come in and try and play a role or look the part of a man if you're a woman. And if you're a man, don't play the part of a woman. It's, it's, that's not how we were meant. We were meant to live into the glory of our genders. So maybe you hear all that and you say, okay, but why don't we wear head coverings? I mean, Paul's pretty clear here. Why, I mean, if we want to take this passage seriously, why don't we, we do that? And Claire Smith, a New Testament scholar, is really helpful on this point. She gives a reason why we as Christians not just don't wear head coverings, but actually shouldn't. Here's what she says. Veils today more often mean the exact opposite from what Paul intends. Friends familiar with Muslim culture, which is primarily where veils are worn today, tell me their head coverings are a sign of subservience and inequality rather than a visual reminder of authority that occurs within a relationship of equal worth and dignity. One of the ways I prepped for this message this week was just to email a lot of, of women and get their thoughts. And, and we have someone in our church who, um, who was a part of a church growing up that actually they wore head coverings. And when her family began to push back and sort of ask, why do we do that? Why do we still do this? One of the church leaders responded by saying, well, that's one way we remind ourselves that women and men are not equal. Which is the exact opposite of what Paul's point is here and that's why we don't wear head coverings anymore today as a church, because they send a different message than they sent in that day. That Paul, I think, today would write to us as a church and say, don't wear them. They, look, they make women look subservient and unequal, so don't do that practice. It's okay. Well, where does it say that? Where does it say that, that head coverings are a sign of women's equality and dignity? Well, this, is, this takes some work, but it's there in verse 7 in particular, which this is probably the second verse that you read and you just think, oh boy, this, this just sounds bad, um, Verse 7, it says this, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. All right, it sounds like, well, men, they have the glory and image of God, and women have the glory of men. That's, that's what it reads like, but that's not Paul's point. Paul is pointing us back to Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning of our Bibles. In Genesis 1, Paul's, I think, intentional here in two ways. One, he does not say women are made in the image of God, which or in the image of, of men, because they're not. And Genesis 1 is clear, men and women together are made in the image of God. And the second thing Paul says, when he says women are the glory of man, he's not saying that's a lesser glory. He's reminding them, these Corinthians, of the Genesis 2 story. Where God makes Adam first, and he looks at Adam, and it's the only thing in Genesis 1 and 2 where God says, that's not good. That he looks at Adam, and all that he's called Adam to do, right? Go out into the world, cultivate it, make it flourish. And God looks at Adam and says, you can't do that alone. And God's answer to that moment is not to say, hey, here's an elephant. Good luck. Do it with, it. We'll do it with that. Right? Or to, to give him another man. No, God's answer to that lack, to that need is a different gender, a female, Eve. And that's why Paul says to remove the head covering is to, re- to forget that moment, women, where God said, Adam, you're not good by yourself. And he created women for the purpose that this world could flourish and people could, could fill it and subdue it and, have, and, and, and live into the fullness of what God has made. Men could not do that alone. And so Paul's saying when, when you deny that, when you deny yourself as a woman, you're denying that glorious calling God has, has made you for. And the second thing Paul says to sort of say, remember women, you're, you have an incredible glory as females. Is this verse 10, which is just, it's interesting. Um, right? That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angel's. Makes total sense, right? What in the world is Paul saying? And remember, a few weeks ago, one of the central things Paul says to the Corinthians is that at the end of all time, Christians will judge all the angels. Right? Everything evil, demonic in the world, everything unjust, wrong about this place, man and woman, alongside one another, will stand in judgment with Christ over it all. And I think Paul's point there when he says that is, is women, don't forget your dignity and your value and your worth and your quality. You're going to stand next to men and judge all of creation alongside Jesus. That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful, glorious thing. And when you deny your role as female, you deny what that beauty is. And so that's why I think Paul is, would say to us today, don't, don't wear head coverings. It's a sign of subservience or inequality. And that's not Paul's point here. His point is to remind, remind women of their, their dignity, their calling, their value. And then he's saying to, to both men and women... Don't deny your gender. Don't deny the uniqueness and the glory behind that for which God made you. And so the basic applica- application point, the reason Paul presses into head covering so much, is he's saying to women, don't play the part of a male. And to men, don't play the part of a female. It's not your role. You're, you're going to miss your glory. You're going to miss why God made you. And I would also say, here's where we as a church need to be really careful Because often what happens here is is Christians begin to say, oh, well, this is what it looks like to be a man, right? A man eats meat and watches football and grows a beard. Well, maybe the last part. We'll agree with the last part. But the rest, it's like, right, we just throw out these generalities. Or for a woman, right, she has to have a certain job or stay at home or she has to do that. And that's where the church gets into all kinds of problems where we begin to go far beyond what Paul says here. All Paul says is, you're a man. Live into it. You're a female. Live into it. And he doesn't say anything else. I think there's a reason To give us freedom to work that out, as men, as women, as married people in a church, to work that out and to live into the glory is how God made us uniquely. But there is is one line in the sand that Paul, I think, does draw when it comes to gender roles between men and and women. And it comes from an even more confusing verse than 1 Corinthians 11. And in case you thought this was difficult, it's about to get much more difficult. Um, But 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 and 34. You don't need to turn there. I'll read... I'll read for us. Here's what Paul says. Um, yeah, a couple chapters later. As in all the God, or <clears throat> as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. Let me unpack that. What's happening there? I think is. Is so see, the early church had a very different worship service than us. People would come, and they would bring their gifts. They would come, they'd bring maybe a scripture to read, a song to sing, a, pray to, a prayer to pray. And so you had all sorts of people contributing, which is why in verse 11, it seems like Paul's totally contradicting himself in, ver- in chapter 14, because in verse 5 of chapter 11, Paul says, now when you're a woman, and you come, and you pray, and you prophesy, right? When you come, and you speak in the worship service, then you need to have your head covered, and then, Two chapters later, Paul's like, well, I don't want women to speak in churches. How can he say both things? And the reason is 1 Corinthians 14 is a very specific context where someone has come. They've said something. They've prayed a prayer. They've done something in front of the whole church. And now this this certain member or the certain group of the church, the elders, were to weigh what had just been said. Was it true? Was it faithful to God's word? Was it Was it accurate? And, and during that time, that's when the women were to remain silent, because I, I think the only line, or the, the main line Paul draws in the sand here is that, that, that the role of elder in the life of the church is, is only for males. I know some of you probably hear that and you think, what's an elder? I don't even know what that is. And... and a real short explanation, it's the teaching authority of, of the church. So we have nine elders here at Christ Community, and they oversee the whole of, of our church, and they are all, all male. That's the one line we've drawn as, as a church, <clears throat> which means you'll find women leading in every other capacity in the life of our church except for, except for that one, right? And I know for some of you it's, it, that just makes it worse, but, but that's the one line we've sort of seen God or Paul draw here. And so that raises a, a question. Why? Why, why men elders and not women? I don't know. And Paul doesn't really explain it. And in fact, I get really frustrated when pastors begin to give reasons. Right? Like, well, men are... It's, it, because we, we know it's not because men are better. Right? I mean, men are not better in 1 Corinthians 11. It's not because women are incapable. Right? We, we read the pages of the New Testament. and the Old Testament, we see women all over the place speaking, contributing to the life of God's people... It's clearly because women aren't in college. I mean, it's neither reason. And tr- Christians often say that, and it's ridiculous. The truth is, I don't know. My best guess, and I, this is thin ice, so you can just disregard the next piece if you want. But, but the reality is men in every culture in our, in our world today hold the, the position of privilege. Right? Even in our egalitarian society, and I was even talking to someone from Europe last night about the same thing, same deal there, egalitarian society, but still men hold all the positions of privilege. The politics, the CEOs, they, they hold the most power. And maybe God just said, you know, I want one space where men lead and it's, it's not for themselves. It's not for, for their own gain. It's to be a counteractive to the rest of the world where men use their privilege and their authority to, to abuse and to get their own way. I'm gonna create this other space where it's different. I don't know that's right. That's my, that's my best guess. Because even because every culture in, in the world, right, men still hold the privilege, still hold the power. And I think Paul I think God recognizes that, and he doesn't want life to look like that. And so the church is supposed to look different. Maybe. Truth is, I don't know, and Paul doesn't tell us. He just said, this is one distinction that, that God has drawn. And even though I may not be able to give us a good answer, Kathy Keller, in her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, I think is really helpful on this point, where she points out that we live in a culture that tries to make men and women unisex, right? that there's, there shouldn't be a distinction, we're the same, we're, we're not different. And so Kathy, by way of C.S. Lewis, she quotes C.S. Lewis here, pushes back on that notion in our culture, and here's what she says. In a secular world, men and women can and must be treated as unisex, interchangeable neuters, citizens and workers. However, that's a fiction that we are allowed to shed when we return to the world of reality, God's world. And one of the ends for which sex, which gender was created was to symbolize the hidden things of God. We have no authority to take the living and sensitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them as if they were mere geometrical figures. With the church, we are farther in. For there we are dealing with male and female not merely as facts of nature but as the live and awful shadows of reality of realities utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our knowledge. Kathy's point there is, is we as men and women we are not interchangeable parts. There's a mystery there's a beauty here between men and women that can never be lost. And if either you're A conservative or you you lean into conservative culture and you think men are better than women, then you lose that you lose that need, you lose that value. Or if you just smooth over the differences and men are and women are completely the same, you lose that distinctness and that glory. Because together, we and as men and women reflect God's glory together in a way that we never could individually. And that means we have different roles to play in moments, not because one is better than the other, but because we have different glory different gifts, different intent behind why we are here. And so our glory is to tell God's story. Our glory is to to show the glory in our difference. And finally, third, there's glory in our need. Now, my favorite verses in this chapter, in chapter 11, are verses 11 and 12. And I think Paul even gets the tension he's, he's walking into here. And then in verse 11, he just says, nevertheless, as if to say, okay, I've said a bunch of stuff. Really hear me here. Nevertheless. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Remember, this is again pointing us back to Genesis 1 and 2, where the first, the first human being God made was Adam. And out of Adam, God made Eve. So the first woman came from man, but every human being since then has been born of a woman. Right, every human being since then has come from a a woman. Which means, men, if you're ever tempted to think your position makes you better, just remember, it took you a lot of a lot of hard work, and toil and pain to get you here, and it was all the work of a woman. You're not better. In fact, remember, God looked at us as men in Genesis two and said, "Not good. We're in trouble." And he created females that if you walked into my house and saw my two boys in the chaos of our home, you would most certainly walk out of there saying, Tim cannot do this alone. If you walk into this church, into our offices, and you see the questions we we face and the things we're trying to wrestle through to, to grow and make this a good place, you would most certainly walk out of there and say, Tim, Andrew, this church, we cannot do this alone. And God's answer to all of that, to our problem, to my problem... It's not more human beings, not more creatures, but a different gender, female. And Paul illustrates this beautifully, right? I came from a woman. I'm only here because my mom was willing to bring me here. And there's glory in that need for us to recognize we're incomplete without the other gender, to recognize that we cannot get through life in the way we're meant to without the other gender speaking in to who we are. And every other culture misses this. And the Bible, I think, here is carving out a very unique road. It's a tough road to maintain and not fall off on either side. But, but it's why cultural conservatives would hate chapter 11, where women are, are speaking, edifying the church, praying for the church, leading in very evident ways. Cultural conservatives won't like that. And cultural liberals don't like 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says, but there's still some distinction, there's still some difference between men and women. That the Bible says something completely unique here. We as men and women, we need each other and are incomplete without the opposite gender. So let's get practical. How do we live these words? Well, I'm still trying to figure this out, but but let me just give you a a story and then three things that we have to love to do this. Things that we don't love. That when... Missy and I were deciding whether or not to come to Kansas City. At first, I was pretty strong and, and wanted to come, but Misty leaned more towards, towards not wanting to come. That we were applying for the pastoral fellowship, which is a two-year process, which meant we would come, we'd be here two years, and then we'd move and, and leave after that. And since the launch of Shawnee, that's changed, so we're, we're here long term. But originally, the thought of coming into a place two years and leaving, it was really hard for Misty in particular, whereas I just saw the things I wanted and, and just, just was ready to press on. And so what happened? Well, we, we danced. We visited Kansas City. We talked. And two things happened. On the one side, Misty e said, you know, if you feel called to this, let's go. Right, this is right. Let's do this. Right, have conviction. Make up your mind. But I also did a lot of listening, and she asked a lot of really good questions. Right, that me, as, as a, a man, I tend not to lean a lot of thought into feelings. It's not my strength. I'm working, but it's not my strength. And I just didn't think through the fact of what it would mean to move my wife, my young son, go make a bunch of friends, and then pull back out. How difficult that was going to be. I just didn't think about that. That she showed me things I could not have seen in my own power, in my own self. So we wrestled through that. And eventually we decided together we both wanted to come to Kansas City. And I think that's the way it should work. in in 99.6% of the stories or the interactions we have between male and female is that as we dance, we come to the same place. Right? But in the 4% or .4% maybe where that doesn't happen, I think, I think we're called to a couple of things. That for women, I think it's a moment then for you to trust the males in your life, whether it's your husband or the leaders of the elders of the church, to trust their leadership. Like Christ trusted his father on his way to the cross. And men, we are to dance like Christ did. Never demanding, never dragging our dance partners, never coercing we're to live out that, and it's not easy. It's a tension, and the only way we can do it is to love three things we don't love, as Americans, just as human beings. Three things we don't like. The first being, we got to love silence. If we're going to relate and, and see the other gender speaking to our life in beautiful ways, we have to love silence. But the reality is, we live in a culture where everyone's talking all the time. Right? We got twenty-four hour news. We have Facebook. We have Instagram. All those things are great for the most part. Right? And I know I need this application point more than anyone in this room, right? As someone whose main task of my vocation is to speak, right? I'm not just saying, hey, love silence so I can preach all the time. Right? I mean, I get I'm a little self-interested here, but the reality is if I don't love silence myself, I will miss the beauty of what God has for me from other people, especially other genders. And so that's really the the main point of 1 Corinthians 14 is Paul's not just saying to women, hey, you have to be silent in that part. He's actually telling the whole church through verses 26 26 through 40, when you come together to worship, most of you should be silent, should listen. And here's why, verse 26 in 1 Corinthians 14. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. But the image Paul paints There is is one of people coming and contributing and speaking into the life of the church, men and women both. But we so often are more concerned about getting our voice heard, making sure we're up on stage speaking. Again, I know I I need this more than anyone. And the reality is we need to be people who love to listen. To listen to the people God has put around us. That men, remember, in Genesis 2, God looked at us by ourselves and said, not good. Not good. Which is why the women are around you, that are around you. Your, your spouse, if you're married, your brothers or your, your sisters in Christ. It's why they're there. Because by yourself, you're not good. You need females. So listen and love silence when they're speaking. And women, it's, it's why you have the men around them. Trust them. Right? God created you to place you alongside them. To both speak into their lives and have them speak into yours. When they, when they are speaking, love silence to really listen. So we have to love silence, but second, we have to love our difference. And male and female, we're different. And and this point, really, is is probably more for the men than than for the woman. If you're a woman, I do hope you, you hear this morning that we need your voice. And not just that we need your voice, we want your voice. We will fail as a church if you're not speaking into the life of what we're doing. And men, it's our job to make sure that those voices are loud and clear and heard. Not because we should have positions of privilege, but that's just a reality in our culture. Even in an egalitarian culture, men still hold so much privilege. And we have a choice with what to do with that. To use it for ourselves or to use it like Jesus used. To give it up so that other voices could be heard. So that voices different than ours could speak into our lives and the life of our church. But throughout the New Testament, it's clear, Paul continually worked to have women's voices heard. And we see that, their contribution all over the place. Whether it's Priscilla in, in teaching the gospel to Apollos, who was the greatest preacher. It was Priscilla, a woman, who taught him the gospel. Or whether it was Lydia, who helped start the church in Philippi. Without her business, smarts, and the income she'd accumulated, never would have happened. That, that healthy church, the letter we have to Philippi, which I read from earlier. And then in this chapter, there's Chloe. Or in 1 Corinthians, there's Chloe, who most likely hosted the church of Corinth in her house. There's significant women whose voices speak into the life of the church. And men, we had better make sure we're creating space for that, which means we're silent. It means we create that, that space so that they can speak into the life of the church. And So we love, we have to love silence, we have to love our difference, and finally, we have to love being second. And maybe after hearing all of this, you still say, but Tim, what you're, what you're saying is it's just so... It's so wrong. It's an assault on the dignity of women to say there's certain things, or to, the, the role of elder is something they can't have, or there's differences. It's an assault on women's dignity. It's not fair. It's not right. And I understand all of that. But I would ask a question in a gentle pushback, which is when Jesus willingly took a subservient role, second place, and gave up his rights for the right of others, was that an assault on his dignity? An assault on his rights. Or was that the moment when his glory shined greatest? When he went to his cross for me. When he was silent for me. When he was beaten, bruised, died for me. Gave up everything he could have claimed rights to so that I could have a voice and a hope. And if it's not an assault on his dignity, it's not an assault on ours. And that's not something women are just called to, it's all of us that are called to that, to take seconds. As I reflect on the cross, on Jesus' story, the question to me, or the question really we should all be asking this morning, is why would I ever demand to be first when the only reason I'm saved is because Jesus became last? Let's pray.